Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. This episode of the Archaeology Podcast is sponsored by Digital Training from the Center for Digital Archaeology. Visit digitaltraining.site for more information on high-quality archaeological training webinars that you can join in from anywhere in the world. That's digitaltraining.site. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode 5. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we talk to Swedish archaeologist Dr. Martin Rundqvist about his work in Europe on Bronze Age archaeology, Uh, and other things he's working on. Let's dig a little deeper. Okay, we're here on the Archaeology Podcast, and we're here with Dr. Martin Runequist. We're going we're gonna to pronounce it that That's way for his benefit. <laughs> All right, so Martin, why don't you just give us a, a, a brief little biography about yourself and, uh, and what you do. And you're in Sweden, so um, just so our listeners know that. I'm in Stockholm, Sweden, as I've pretty much always been, uh, mm-hmm. excepting a couple of years uh, as a kid in Connecticut. But uh, I did my PhD at the uh, University of Stockholm in uh, 03. And mm-hmm. since then, I've uh, published another couple of monographs, and I edit one of the bigger journals we've got over here in archaeology. So I'm basically your your standard uh, member of the academic precariat uh, on short uh, teaching contracts or no contracts and short um, research stipends. Nice. Um, mainly doing mainly doing research actually, and uh, and enjoying that a lot. Okay, isn't Stockholm where they're doing the uh, uh, the Nobel Prize awarding today? I think. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my hometown. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, when you do win a Nobel Prize, at least you won't have that far to go, right? That's very good. Ex- exactly, <laughs> because they don't pay you your, the prize in advance, so you'll have to uh, probably pay the the air ticket by right. yourself and then collect the money, which would be a problem. But I can walk. Nice, nice. All right. Well, let's talk about your blog real quick, um, because uh, that's how I first found you years ago when I was looking at archaeology blogs. And uh, you've got a blog called Archaeology, and we will link to that in the show notes. Um, but why don't you tell us a little bit, uh, you know, when you started that blog, because you've been doing it for a long time, I think, um, and then kind of what your blog is about and what people can get when they go there. Yeah, it's kind of venerable by now, actually. <laughs> uh, I've been on uh, scienceblogs.com with that blog uh, for 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I had a, a smaller blog on Blogspot. But, uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's... Uh, about archaeology and history and music and books and uh, whatever sort of strikes my fancy. In in recent years, a lot of the shorter ideas I get end up as Facebook updates, and then I Mm -hmm. collect them a few times a month uh, because I I have an unreasonably high opinion of of my own (laughs) ideas. (laughs) Uh, So I call that pieces of my mind. Uh, But uh, yeah, I'll... I basically don't really feel um, any uh, compulsion to act, uh, act as a news service for archaeology. I, I just write about the stuff that really interests me. And, uh, of course, with a heavy Scandinavian slant, mm-hmm. uh, as your listeners will know, archaeology is not one global subject. It's uh, uh, 3,000 regional subjects, and uh, there are uh, chronological specializations in each region. So. Uh, a Stone Age expert in Stockholm doesn't need to read the publications of a high medieval scholar in Stockholm and so on. Mm-hmm. So okay. I mainly do uh, the, the last, past like 3,000 years in, mm-hmm. uh, in southern Scandinavia. That's my bit. Nice. Now, how did you uh, – I'm, I'm just curious this because I, I, I kind of slowed down on my blogging a little bit just because I, I podcast so much now. So I figured my opinion's out there enough times. But um, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering how did you – did you seek out science blogs or how did you get picked up by those guys? Yeah, I uh, I sort of um, 
I just sort of <clears throat> wrote them and said, here's what I've been doing the past year on on, hot, uh, on mm -hmm. Blogspot. Uh, nice. Would you like to put me in your in your stable? And uh, uh, currently, uh, Science Blogs is a pretty decimated place compared to what it was like in 2006. It was mm -hmm. in 06. It was a pretty hot place. It was bankrolled by this uh, um, uh, genius kid in New York uh, with, with his um, uh, his inherited money and. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm, a lot of people have uh, have gone on to greater things or to lesser things, and uh, there's a few of us left. I think there's a bit, maybe like uh, 17 or 18 active blogs, still on the network. But it's um, it's not um, it doesn't play the part it did in 06, and maybe also you could say that blogging doesn't play the part it did in 06 anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. But it's good. For, it's good. It's good fun, though, because uh, I'm a journal editor and I know what editors are like. So I really enjoy being able to put whatever I like out without having to think <laughs> about an editor. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was a question, too. So sci science blogs doesn't moderate your uh, your posts at all. You can as long as you maybe stick in the realm of uh, you don't you don't divert from science too much. <laughs> I would imagine you can't start you can't turn your blog into something about cooking, I would imagine. But yeah. Uh, um, well, actually, I've I've never run into any problems with that. Uh, but uh, I'm not the kind of blogger who seeks controversy. I mean, you know, I, I I'm not interested in uh, in uh, trolling uh, online. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> of course, I have I have one or two controversial opinions, but they're mainly controversial within the very limited realm of Scandinavian archaeology. So, <laughs> uh, the the actually the only only time anything like that uh, has come uh, into uh, into my view at Blogs is when they uh, uh, created the adult content tick box in mm -hmm. backstage. So if I write something extremely pornographic one day, then I will, for the first <laughs> time, have to have to use that tick box. And I think it has to do with advertising, because some advertisers don't want their right. uh, their ads to go up along something really raunchy. But uh, that, that's not what I'm about, so it's not really a problem. Well, there you well, go. Well, actually, I did, I did, I did once blog about um, a uh, a pressure flaker. Uh, it's a tool used mm -hmm. for for fine flint working. <laughs> they found one in in Sweden that had pretty much a dildo in one end and a pressure <laughs> flaker in the other. End. <laughs> so, if if the the adult content box had existed at the time, I would probably have had to tick it. But um, that that's the only time. Really. Wow! Nice. Uh, the the dildo was like like um, uh, one third of an inch thick, so it's probably more symbolic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, nice. All right, well, um, let's move into uh, to some of the stuff you're doing over there. So uh, you sent us a few papers, um, and I like how you, you mentioned in the beginning, you know, with blogging and and what people are interested in things like that. Is there's you know, not one world archaeology. There's like, you know, lots and lots of regional and, and specializations. But in one of the papers you sent us, um, well, actually, it's a um, it's a book in the landscape um, and between worlds. You talk about landscape archaeology and you specifically talk about, you know, drilling that down into even tighter focus of just, you know, I'm standing on a hillside. What can I see from here? And what does this mean in, you know, the time period that I'm that I'm researching? Can you talk a little bit about what uh, what kind of drew you to uh, to landscape archaeology and, and and what you're what you're doing in that realm right now? Yeah, that's fun. That was the book I put out last year uh, mm -hmm. about uh, the Bronze Age, like three thousand years ago, uh, pretty much in the Stockholm area. Actually, didn't want to to travel too far. So the idea there was, as you say, that the landscape um, scale level is stuff you can walk around and experience in in an hour or two of walking. Uh, it's not the perspective of the the single site where you're sort of looking at something that's uh, uh, 400 yards long, but uh, it's not either the scale level where you're putting dots on a map of Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, sort of the intermediate level. And what I did was I went into the museum catalogs and I looked at all the uh, Bronze Age uh, metalwork and uh, um, battle axe finds from this period. And I tried to find out where exactly were they found, because nobody's cared about that before. And nobody's had access to the data in the way we have now with the Internet. So I managed to find almost 200 of these sites where I could point to a, a one piece mm -hmm. of, of dirt and say that this is where they found this stuff in 1859 or whatever. And then I could uh, start to look at this more, to, more in aggregate and generalize. I, I'm not very interested in the kind of landscape archaeology where you're trying to understand one site and you're wandering around sort of feeling the vibes 
like uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the English uh, scholar Christopher Tilley has advocated. Uh, so I, I tried to, to make this into sort of a, uh, a general uh, phenomenon to look at from a slightly uh, uh, higher point. And uh, I managed to find some, um, what I like to call landscape rules. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that <clears throat> Uh, when these people are sacrificing bronze objects and, and these really nifty uh, polished axes of stone, they're not just doing it randomly. They're not tossing them over their shoulder. Uh, they are uh, choosing, selecting places uh, of special significance. They like rapids and rivers, and they like um, hourglass-shaped lakes, so they will throw axes into the narrows at the middle of the lake. Hmm. They like uh, the mouths of rivers and um, the heads of rivers where they uh, uh, sort of uh, debouche from, from a lake. That's a good place to, to sacrifice axes and uh, jewelry and stuff. Because if you excavate these people's uh, ex uh, um, settlement sites, it looks like the Stone Age. They, they don't deposit bronze hmm. uh, where they live. Instead, you find this stuff when you... Um, uh, irrigate, uh, no, when you drain wetlands or if you uh, dredge uh, rivers and stuff in the area. Mm -hmm. So that was fun uh, <clears throat> because a lot of the other categories of site from this period have been looked at from a landscape perspective. So we sort of know the rules for where a good, a good place for a settlement site is or where a good place for a grave is. Mm -hmm. uh, and it turned out that you could um, uh, slot the, uh, the sacrificial sites into this model. And that's interesting because that makes them more predictable for contract archaeology. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. I've, I've been pitching this book pretty heavily to, to my colleagues in, in rescue archaeology, contract archaeology, because I'm hoping that they will be able to find these sites more uh, proactively, not just wait around for, for some farmer to find them as, as we have before. Mm -hmm. So this was something I actually found really interesting in your article, where it's not necessarily this strict experiential approach to landscape. Um, and it's also not the broad overview where you're sort of looking um, at where all these sites are. It somehow falls in between where there is sort of an experiential aspect to the patterns of deposition of these sacrificial objects, where you talk about people looking for, you know, distinctive landscape features or water features that kind of stand out. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why people might have been choosing these areas for these kind of sacrifice um, deposits and also define what those are for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with kind of European hordes and artifact sacrificing? Yeah, um, well, we should say first that this is a pre completely prehistoric era. So this is hundreds of, of years before Homer and Homer wasn't in, even in this area. So th there's nobody writing anything relevant. Uh, so we can't sort of um, cheat and, and ask them <laughs> what they're thinking. Uh, so we have to infer uh, what they were thinking from their behavior. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that they're trying to communicate with somebody who is in, in the water. Uh, because they're, uh, uh, it happens that they may uh, sacrifice in uh, caves and hillsides and that sort of thing, but that's a very small number of sites. When they have a good chunk of uh, bronze objects that they want to deposit, then it's usually in, in a wet uh, situation. And uh, they're kind of funny because they're, this, this being or those beings they're talking to are super particular. So you'll find them loading a canoe full of bronze and paddling it across the the sea to an island and then carrying the stuff up onto the island and depositing it in a small lake on the island. So they couldn't just put it in the sea because that's wrong. <laughs> that's a wrong number. You cannot call God here. Um, but also they, they, they choose these um, scenic spots like the south end of these long uh, gravel ridges that crosses the post-glacial landscape in this part of Sweden. So they will uh, climb up onto the south terminal of these, these things, um, preferably uh, close to to, to water and you've got these uh, really shiny polished bronze objects that glint in the sunshine on the south south end of this thing and they will go into the ground or into there's even a case where they've found a bog on top of the ridge so they, they've sort of found a micro version of the wetlands they usually sacrifice in and they they stick down stick like 15 objects into the tiny kettle bog on top of the ridge and um, well, what are they hoping to get out of it? There's, there's been a debate about this, and there's been all kinds of weird economic uh, interpretations where they're trying to, to make bronze more scarce because otherwise there will be inflation in the value of bronze. Uh, 
And uh, I, I mean, if I'm a bronze owner, I will be very happy if you guys get rid of bronze to, mm -hmm. to push up the value of my stuff. But <laughs> I can't really see a mechanism where, where I would be um, motivated <laughs> to get rid of mine because if I get rid of my, my bronze, yeah, the value of your stuff goes up. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, that's not quite uh, what I was aiming for. Um, do, you, do, you know um, they, do you know if they had I, a value? I don't want to be too specific. Oh, yeah, this stuff is not uh, free. Uh, this stuff is yeah. very clearly traded for because in Sweden, there is no tin ore and okay. the copper ore in Sweden is only available to somebody with a pretty advanced uh, uh, mining technique. Mm. So um, uh, the Bronze Age is this weird um, interlude in Swedish history where they have to import every gram of the most important material for their technology. I mean, before the Bronze Age, they were fine. They were napping local, uh, local nappable stones uh, available everywhere. And after the Bronze Age, they're getting iron ore out of the bog behind their house and making iron uh, in a small furnace in the yard. Mm -hmm. So they were fine there too. But the Bronze Age here is 1,200 years when they have to trade for every gram of this stuff. Nobody in Hungary, nobody in Ireland is going to give them the Bronze just because they're so nice. Right. <laughs> so what can you uh before we and, go too much further hungary and ireland <laughs> that's actually how far they... i was gonna say uh before we go too much further um and i think we're getting some skype lag here because uh you know around the world but um yeah. <laughs> that's okay uh can you explain just for our listeners what is the actual time period for the bronze uh for the bronze age in sweden well uh we define it from the the day when they quit making their most important cutting tools out of stone and that's mm -hmm. like 1700 BC, okay. calibrated. And uh, then it goes on to sometime in the 6th century BC. So it's a bit less than, than 1200 years. Okay. And, uh, uh, and they actually use the bronze. Uh, it's not just sort of magical or symbolic. They, mm -hmm. uh, they make uh, symbolic objects out of it, but they also make the mo most humble knives and axes of this stuff. And uh, compared to uh, something made out of quartz or chert, this is actually, these are pretty good tools. So there is a technological incentive to, to switch to bronze. But of course, there's uh, this huge uh, body of uh, ideas around it, too. We know mm -hmm. that from, uh, from the rest of Europe, because they're, they're all reacting pretty much in the same way. So you get this complex of uh, sort of dialects of a, a pan-European Bronze Age where, where the design of the stuff will be subtly different in different parts. The Scandinavians are pretty funny because a lot of the bronze they're buying is already cast into workable objects when they get it. Hmm. So they're not sort of getting bars out of bronze, they're getting axes. <laughs> but they don't like them because they're, I don't know, German axes or Hungarian axes. <laughs> so they recast the stuff <laughs> when it gets, it gets into Scandinavia. So mm -hmm. there's, we've got something called the South Scandinavian Bronze Age culture. And they've got this amazing, um, completely uh, original uh, version of the, of the European Bronze Age where everything is decorated and designed in a slightly different, uh, characteristically Scandinavian way. So was bronze used, um, you've mentioned all the objects and things made out of bronze. Was it actually used as like a, a currency or anything as well um, besides just the objects? Did they make like coins and stuff out of it or did they trade it as a, as a currency or was it, um, was it solely in the realm of like uh, uh, objects that they could, you know, use for some sort of symbolism? Um, they were not using currency in the way we think of it. There was no sort of monitor very aware of the weight of objects. So if you look at a lot of these things, they are um, uh, weighed in units that are uh, known from Egypt and the Near East, that sort of thing. Um, so uh, apparently the, the amount of bronze you got was not just <clears throat> uh, contingent on somebody's good mood that day. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the, the people who traded you the bronze knew how much bronze you were getting. And they probably wanted something in return. And uh, the answer to that question uh, that many scholars give is um, amber. Mm. Uh, amber can be uh, fished out of the Baltic Sea and also the um, parts of the North Sea, like uh, southern Denmark, eastern uh, Netherlands. Okay. And um, also um, uh, fur. First, because northern Scandinavia is obviously super cold, so furry animals get really nice furs there, and uh, that's uh, throughout throughout uh, prehistory and history that's been a really important um, uh, trade good around okay. here. 
Uh, and uh, when these people show up in, in history, then um, um, they're big slavers. But mm-hmm. that's later. So we don't really know about the, the Bronze Age. There's um, there's Roman poetry where where uh, nasty poets are accusing uh, uh, sort of uh, Roman society ladies of uh, not having their own hair. Their own their hair comes from the head <laughs> of a Germanic boy, <laughs> that uh-huh. sort of thing. So maybe they were uh, they were. In, I mean, the Romans were interested in in uh, people with with uh, unusual hair colors, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, t- to answer your question, this stuff is not symbolic, um, at least not completely symbolic, uh, but it's not currency either. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll dive into that just a little bit more right after the break. Back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So before we head on to another topic, uh, I think we have a couple of follow-up questions from our last segment. So one of the things that, Martin, you started to talk about um, is just the extent of the connections of Bronze Age Scandinavians to other parts of the world, you know, where they're getting this bronze from, the trade in uh, amber and all these other goods that are being produced. And I think that's something that we, as archaeologists, often struggle to think about is just the extent of contacts and ties and movements of people around in these, you know, prehistoric worlds. Um, so where, what are the ties? What is the extent of this for Scandinavians? Well, it's huge. We've recently, just in the past couple of years, learned a lot about uh, population gen- genomics in uh, Europe in general. And it turns out that the, the most common like three uh, Y chromosome haplotypes in the Swedish population, just looking at every male in Sweden. Uh, the, the biggest groups are uh, groups that enter Sweden and join the Bronze Age. So uh, they've only been uh, around. The, the majority uh, of our male genome has only been around for less than 3,000 years, uh, most of it. So it's a, what this means is that uh, we see some um, immigration of very successful people. Uh, at this time, because obviously, if um, if I'm um, uh, sitting somewhere uh, half starved, uh, cut off from the rest of society, I'm not going to leave a lot of uh, uh, footprint in the genome, uh, in the population. Um, and uh, we know from imported objects and the sort of uh, cultural um, um, diffusion that the 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 world has always been more or less wired together. Uh, but the, the genetic studies has really under, uh, underlined that. And it's also made any idea of sort of racial purity or uh, um, uh, Aryan supremacy completely untenable because <laughs> everybody's super mongrelized. And it's, uh, it's not just in Sweden. It's, it's all around, everywhere. Quite fascinating. I mean, um, uh, my, my wife is Chinese, so I'm, I'm uh, keeping up a, a, a proud tradition. <laughs> That's actually really interesting when you think about kind of the history of um, using archaeology to kind of prove historic precedents for things that now all of a sudden archaeology is proving that we really are this incredibly interconnected group of people that have been interbreeding and interacting for thousands of years. Um, And it's hard to draw these really concrete line, national lines or identity Mm. lines. Yeah, it's it's a 19th century fantasy. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting. All right. You know, they found uh, a Roman um, a cemetery somewhere in southern England just a few months ago. No, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that one. 
Huh. Oh, yeah, it's uh, been around the news uh, very recently, and uh, they they looked at their genes. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, skeletal morpho morphology to that so far, but uh, these guys are very clearly far travelers that ended up <laughs> in a... Uh, Roman cemetery in England. Martin, uh, real quick, I want to bring it back to um, the landscape archaeology discussion and something that you mentioned when you were talking about that uh, that interests me because I am a um, I'm a contract archaeologist here in the United States, and uh, uh, you mentioned coming up with um, I guess rules uh, for landscape archaeology that you could um, then apply to a different landscape and say, well, it's likely that we're going to find this here, here, and here. Um, can you talk just briefly um, about what you know about the contract archaeology, um, I guess, industry in Sweden and and how um, and and how well it works? I mean, I know I know how it works over here, but how much how much archaeology is done by contract archaeologists in Sweden, you know, how, how, how does that interact with, uh, say, academic archaeology? Well, it's 95% of every excavation there you uh, go. In, in Sweden. So we, we barely have academic archaeology if you're mm -hmm. looking at the field. Uh, almost all excavations in Sweden are prompted by uh, land development. And uh, uh, it's uh, well-funded. And I, I like to say that we have the world's strictest monument pr protection because we have the uh, world's humblest monuments. <laughs> So uh, it would be it would be very very hard to apply our legislation anywhere else. Maybe Finland. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if if you try to uh, to enforce Swedish uh, heritage management heritage legislation in Israel or Italy, everything would just stop. Mm -hmm. People wouldn't be able to get go out the door in the morning uh, yeah. because they would. Be, be breaking the heritage law, uh, but in Sweden we um, sort of we um, protect uh, tar production pits in the woods, mm -hmm. and we protect the footprint of a uh, uh, charcoal kiln in the woods mm -hmm. from the 19th century. And uh, re recently we have uh, had a change to our protection law that says that if you find an object and it dates from before 1850. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you are uh, you are legally obliged to offer it to the state for uh, for a consideration. <laughs> wow! Uh, but uh, that that was kind of a, a mistake because they were actually aiming for standing buildings, you know, mm -hmm. industrial um, heritage, that sort of thing. And they thought that well, people are people are stupid. We need to make this uh, these rules really simple. So let's put the same cutoff date on small objects. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. They didn't. Uh, the, the people writing the changes to the law didn't realize that this would uh, smash right into the new rules for metal detectors in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So the poor metal detectorists—they they go out <laughs> to the beach where they've uh, uh, very, very grudgingly been given a permit to to use their detectors. Mm -hmm. And after half an hour, they find a coin from 1849 which turns <laughs> the beach into an ancient uh, monument, and they, they have to. Uh, uh, notify the county archaeologists and immediately make a new application for a new beat. Mm. And uh, this, of course, means that the county archaeologists' offices are, are uh, completely gridlocked. Uh, and uh, uh, well, that's, it's a sad story. But anyway, contract archaeology, um, it's, uh, there's a built-in frustration that I like to mention called the, the I like it to, call, to call it the field archaeological paradox. Mm -hmm. In Sweden, uh, if a site is really, really interesting, uh, the more interesting it is, the less likely it is that you will get money to excavate it. <laughs> because uh, almost all excavations are contract digs, mm -hmm. and they are preceded by uh, evaluations where archaeologists tell engineers where the stuff is. And then the engineers slalom around the interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the contract business, you always end up 400 yards from the interesting site. Right. Uh, because we want, want to keep that for the grandkids. Right. Uh, what you what you can do is try to work on railway projects because high speed trains they can't slalom. Right. They need to. They can only uh, uh, their curvature is is um, sort of limited. So they often smash right into uh, really good sites <laughs> simply because there's no other way to build a railway or it will be a low speed railway, which mm -hmm. wasn't the idea. I mean, it's a high speed railway. Uh, so uh, I was lucky very early on in my career to work on a couple of uh, railway projects, which uh, went into some really fat stuff. That was mm -hmm. really nice. But uh, the, I don't work anymore in contract archaeology. I've only done three seasons in that. And mm -hmm. that's uh, uh, partly because uh, a lot of the stuff you get to do is, is rather, shall we say, humble stuff. <laughs> and right. I'd rather not. So I've uh, I focused on, on research and uh, then I've been uh, very lucky to uh, to collaborate with students and with uh, the daylight variety of metal detectorists uh, 
uh, good, honest people with uh, special skills. So mm -hmm. they, they're great. Uh, the students and metal detectorists like to work for free, which is exactly <laughs> what I need. Exactly. You know, that, uh, to get those kinds of, um, uh, to get those kinds of sites over here where, where a project is just going to mow through something, typically it's got to be like a, a mine out here in the West or uh, like an open pit mine out in the West where they're taking a massive amount of area and anything inside of it's pretty much going to be destroyed. Or pipelines, like you said, pipelines I've seen have the same problems. If it's in the later stages of development on the pipeline, then or if it's in the early stages, they can sometimes do a reroute, especially here in Nevada. You've got a bunch of open land. But like you said, if they're yes. already laying pipe down in certain areas and we're still working in other areas, if you just pull that pipe over just a couple hundred meters, that moves the entire line for several miles. So, um, yeah. you know, you're right. You can't just you, they can't just put a little jog in it. They have to they have to move the entire thing. So I understand mm. that with the high speed rails. Yeah. But I'm also interested in the, the 1850 um rule, which is really interesting to me because we're about to have an episode on the CRM Archaeology podcast discussing the somewhat absurdity of our 50-year rule. I mean, if something is 50 years old, we have to record it. That's the typical rule. Um, and oh. I mean, that's 1966 yeah. at this point. A friend, a friend, of, mine, a friend of mine has ex excavated uh, uh, prohibition bottle dumps in, yeah. uh, outside of San Francisco. <laughs> I don't... Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, 50 years is, is ridiculous, but then I, I belong to those who, who don't much uh, like uh, what they call contemporary archaeology. I think mm -hmm. uh, if you can still call the guy who made the site, then you don't need to excavate the site. <laughs> That's a good point. That should be the metric that we have to use. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, if the if the person giving you the permit is uh, is older than the site that you're recording, then you probably shouldn't have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is typically the yeah, case out here. Yeah. So no, that's that's good. And yeah. you know, I always I always kind of subscribe to the idea of um, you know, because we do have other things like the National Register criteria. We have the National Register of Historic Places, and there's four criteria, which you can get something listed, and that's not necessarily age dependent. Like for example you know, the 9-11 site in New York um, is on the National Register of Historic Places, given the fact that it's not 50 years old because it's historically significant. So I feel like we should just apply mm -hmm. those criteria to, to everything. If this, is a, if this is just a can dump from the 1950s, you know, do mm -hmm. I care? But is it a can dump associated with a homestead associated with somebody who did important things in that area or was an important historical figure? Then maybe now we record that sort of thing. But, um, um, you know, uh, I said that would be, not be a good path to take because then you would have to decide who's who, who's important. Well, that's uh, true. So, uh, yeah, it's, oh. it's all sticky questions. Uh, but, yeah. I think that's part of the 50 year cutoff here, too. And maybe the mm -hmm. 1850 cutoff is there's a moment where you don't know that it's going to be really significant because it's so contemporary. And mm. then, you know, right. 75 years down the line, people go, oh, that actually really didn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Well, and now there's no one to talk to. And we don't have the sites anymore. So yeah, it, it is point. a really tricky situation. But, you know, they've run into that with certain types of buildings where, you know, no one likes brutalist art architecture. So we tore it mm. all down. But now we don't mm. have very many examples of it. And so it, it's a really interesting problem, I think, is when does something matter and how do you determine that? And mm. You don't want to well, gum I'm up a, the system. I'm a prehistorian. So my, my, my criterion is can I learn something I don't know from, right. from the site? Right. And um um, you can learn a lot about brutalist modernist architecture by simply by visiting the library. Mm -hmm. It doesn't true. even have to be a brutalist uh, brutalist library. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, um, you know, why don't we started talking about uh, we started this discussion by talking about you know contract archaeology in Sweden, but um, the the second half of that question was why don't you talk about a little bit about some of the landscape rules that you came up with. Um, and, and developed that that can help actually contract archaeologists and other people because I think one of the things that interesting that I read in uh, that one of the quotes I think you had right at the beginning of that book was about how metal detectors had kind of already figured this out um, and then and then and then and then you get and everybody else comes along and says hey this actually does work we we can look at these things and say you know site predictability and, and stuff like that so why don't you talk a little bit about that and, and the predictability of where sites yeah. can be yeah the the detectorist you mentioned that's a quotation from a paper by Richard Bradley and a co-author mm -hmm. uh, where uh, the their detectorists in southern England they realized that there's something called the spring line at the base of their hills hmm. where uh, rainfall on top of the hills comes out at this line of springs at the base, sort of uh, seeping through the sedimentary rock. And the Bronze Age people uh, are really interested in those springs. So that's where they deposit their bronze. And the detectorists learned that simply by trial and error. 
And the archaeologists uh, twigged it when they realized that, hey, this is the fifth time in as many years that the same guy shows up with a new horde. Uh, so um, it wasn't uh, just uh, these people moving randomly across the landscape. They they figure out figured out just when like when you're picking mushrooms, where is it worthwhile to 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 walk? Mm -hmm. Now the the rules are very different in different uh, regions. So you can't uh, there's no pan-European standard behavior for bronze deposition. Um, in uh, in the part of Sweden that I looked at. It's super important uh, with the wetlands, and they keep a pretty constant distance from other types of uh, contemporary sites. So we have, um, luckily, they they have this weird behavior around um, uh, household waste at their settlements. So particularly in the later parts of the Bronze Age, they build little mounds of their household waste, which can look a bit like burial mounds, only small. And if you uh, sort of uh, scuff the the moss off them, then they're largely they largely consist of uh, cracked stone from heating water. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got this big uh, wooden tub, and you fill it with cold water. You throw glowing uh, hot stones into it just to transfer heat, and the stones break and can't be used again. So they build these little mounds. So it's pretty easy to find their settlements, and they're always a mile from. Uh, I should say it the other way. The uh, bronze deposition sites are always about a mile from the nearest set of. Uh, uh, cracked stone mounds, burnt mm -hmm. mounds. Likewise, uh, this is a, a, an area with rock art. Uh, the Bronze Age is the big rock art uh, uh, era in Scandinavian prehistory. Yeah. And the, the nearest rock art site is always also about a mile from the uh, deposition site. So uh, that's a really good rule of thumb to start with. Where am I? Am I in a liminal position? So we're sort of on the outskirts of the Bronze Age landscape? Or am I in... Uh, in in their business because mm -hmm. um, uh, the, there was this idea uh, in earlier research that uh, bronze deposition and deposition of axes was something you did in secret sort of way uh, way out in the woods in in the uh, borderlands but it turns out that no <laughs> you can usually see the their their homes from the de deposition site if if the vegetation permits Mm -hmm. So that was one one interesting result, and that's also very easy to um, uh, to do method methodologically. You just use the sites and monument register and the, the measure tool, <laughs> so yeah. you uh, measure measure on the map. And of course, when I say it's about a mile, or for for Scandinavians, it's about one one point seven um, uh, kilometers. That's uh, knowing what we know today, but mm -hmm. two years from now, we, we will have identified more rock art and more cryopract uh, mounds. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, this uh, uh, average distance can only shrink. It can never mm -hmm. grow. Uh, okay. The grandchildren will have a, a lower uh, average distance. Mm -hmm. So that, that was interesting. And then also that they're, they're super interested in when the water does something. So they, uh, rapids, they keep coming back to this area's very few uh, river rapids, just time and time again, over hundreds of years. And there's, bis there's been this idea that, yeah, they, they remember that there's been uh, sacrifices here before, but I think they don't. They just keep noticing the rapids. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, the reason that you get like 2,000, years of uh, uh, recurring depositions in, in a set of river rapids is not that they have this uh, huge oral tradition. It's just that you cannot ignore um, uh, river rapids if you believe in some power that lives in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we're gonna. I've got some actually some follow-up questions on the rock art, um, but we're going to do that right after this final break, and we'll come into our final segment here in just a minute. <laughs> Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
All right, we're back for our final segment, and I, I have a question about the rock art that um, that you just mentioned in the last segment. Uh, I'm curious because I'm really into to rock art out here um, in the American West, out here specifically in the Great Basin, and and found quite a bit of it actually. And I'm curious with all the you said the the Bronze Age is is where a lot of the rock art happens in Sweden uh, is the time period. Is the rock art um, similar or a reflection of some of the Bronze Age? bronze artifacts that they have as well or is it more abstract or what kind of um you know iconography or symbolism do you see in the in the rock art in sweden well basically they have two main motifs in this area the, the most common one is simply cup marks which i believe is their way of uh, doing the hail mary uh, so a cup mark is as it sounds just a small cup uh, pecked into uh, a rock but they will do like 70 in on the same rock or, or 300. So it seems that the important thing is not to 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 make a cup in the in the rock and then use it for something. The the important thing is to make make them, not mm-hmm. not to own them. So uh, just as uh, one hail mary will not get you into heaven, uh, if, if you do 72, <laughs> then you're 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 uh, you're in good shape with with the powers. Then the second uh, second most common motif is is figurative, and it's boats. So uh, we have one of these boats. It's slightly after the uh, Bronze Age, but it's exactly the same um, uh, technology that they're depicting very clearly. And uh, it's not hard to understand that they're into boats since um, the, the basis for their technological existence must be taken to, to Sweden by boat, mm-hmm. the Bronze. So uh, we're pretty sure that the people who uh, got the power in, this, in society at this time are the, the people with the boats. Okay. Uh, also, they believe that that uh, uh, the sun can only travel uh, across the sky and back under the uh, underground to where it goes up again uh, by boat. So part of the the, the sun's um, uh, circuit is, is tra- traveling by boat. Also, it's getting pulled by a, a, a cosmic horse part of the way. The top mm-hmm. bit. Across the zenith, there's the cosmic horse, and that's the only bit of uh, uh, Bronze Age mythology that, that survives into uh, the written record of the Eddas uh, in the Viking period and the Middle Ages. The okay. the, the cosmic horse, yeah. And uh, they, you asked about objects. They uh, do um, uh, depict bronze objects uh, quite happily in the rock art. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they depict them in such detail that you can date the rock art from the the types of objects they wow. uh, depict. And also, they uh, sometimes put uh, rock art uh, designs on metalwork, which also helps hmm. uh, cross-date the, the rock art chronology to the, um, uh, the uh, cr- greater chronology for the Bronze Age, which is largely based on fine combinations from graves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but uh, the rock art is different in different regions. So um, around where I am, it's pretty, uh, not, not super rich, but if you go to the area of Gothenburg, one of uh, Sweden's larger cities, you will get awesome rock art with uh, these really complicated scenes of people uh, apparently performing rituals and uh, guys with enormous erections fighting with axes. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's amazing stuff. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, so I think in the interest of time, because uh, we want to talk to you about a bunch of other things, you sent us a few different papers, and April is going to ask you some you questions have to about me one on of them. More, more times. I know. We've got so much to talk about. Uh, but April's going to pepper you some questions about Vikings now, because everybody loves Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, I was stuff. thinking about this. I was like, there's certain time periods and groups that everybody is fascinated with. And so you're actually an archaeologist who gets to research one of them and gets to work on Vikings. Um, and oh, so yeah. One of the papers I, ro- I robbed their graves. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's turn on. Um, so I have to start with a slightly nerdy question, but seen the Viking TV show? It's very popular here in the states. Uh, I have not. Uh, I know that they wear biker leather <laughs> in the TV show. That is, I, I can tell you that we do not find much evidence for that in the archaeological record. Oh well, that feeds well into one of the questions I was going to ask about some of those portrayals of material culture, but. I recommend you check it out. So next time we talk to you, you can give us a rundown as a Viking archaeologist of what you think yeah. of our American loud, portrayals. Dr- loud of this. drones and uh, drones <laughs> and gnashing of teeth. Nice. Yes, I'm sure they all do. Um, yeah. but well, the, so the talk- first thing I'd like to say about the Vikings is that uh, a Viking—that's uh, a job. It's not an ethnic uh, term. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good to point so, out. So. Uh, uh, yeah, so most people in Scandinavia in the Viking period are not Vikings, and most Vikings are only part-time Vikings. 
you're a Viking when you're young because you want to uh, uh, get rich and buy a farm and settle down and have seven kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in the Danelaw or uh, in, in the North Atlantic in uh, one of the islands there, or or maybe at home in, in, in Sweden or Denmark or Norway. Um, so um, uh, the, the term the Viking Age is something that British historians made up because to them it's simply the the, the period when we had all the trouble with the Vikings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in Scandinavia, it's less uh, sensible to call the period the Viking Age because we used to, to do the Viking things for a thousand years before you guys uh, got wind of us. Mm-hmm. So the, the Scandinavians would raid each other mercilessly for a thousand years. It's just that they only had rowboats, but it couldn't raid the French <laughs> and the English. They couldn't get that far. But the moment they developed sail technology, wham, Lindisfarne. Yeah. That's nice. really interesting. So the project you were involved in was a little bit more, not mundane, but looking at some at a house mound, a big platform mound. Can you tell us a little oh, bit yeah. about that and how this fits into kind of our popular conceptions and misconceptions about, um, you know, this Viking era and Viking culture, as we call it? Yeah, that was a really nice one. Um, uh, this is uh, outside of the small town of Vadstena in, in Sweden. Uh, there's this enormous uh, uh, mound shaped like a loaf of bread. And it's uh, people have been wondering a long time for uh, what this is. And uh, it's been floated. Is this a sort of natural or is it a burial mound with a weird shape? And, and uh, one of my old teachers from Stockholm University suggested, no, it's, uh, it's a house platform for a longhouse, just like the ones in... Um, Old Uppsala, which is known from the written record to have been sort of the main uh, power and religious center of the of the Swedish tribe, but uh, this site outside of Vadstena is not in the area of the Swedes. It's in the neighboring tribes area, in the, what you would call the Geats or the Goths, which are not the same as the continental Goths. Anyway, uh, they had in the 80s they uh, trial trenched it and found that it is in fact artificial, and they got uh, an articulated rear bone rear leg of a horse out of it, which gave a a radiocarbon date probably in the 8th century, like exactly at the start of the Viking period or slightly before. Uh, So it's really weird. It looks like a tennis court. It's got a flat top. And it's uh, the flat top is 50 meters long. So uh, a very talented uh, younger uh, geophysicist that we've got in uh, in, uh, Stockholm, uh, Andreas Wiberg, Dr. Andreas Wiberg, uh, him and me, we went down on uh, Saturday morning with um, a geo, um, uh, um, GPR, a ground penetrating radar rig. And uh, I moved the elastic um, laundry lines across the, this flat top of the mound. And Andreas, he um, uh, walked um, uh, backwards across the mound to and fro for, for uh, like for a total of, was it maybe 10 hours or something? Hmm. And then we, we uh, thanks to this, we could, could simply tell the world that, yeah, there was a 50-meter-long um, uh, banqueting hall on top of this structure. It's not a burial mound. It's, um, uh, it's a house uh, platform. And this suddenly um, elevates this village outside of Ostena in, in uh, this part of Sweden to the level of uh, Old Uppsala, which is the ceremonial center that everybody knows about. So it's... Um, Suddenly, we we see the contours of this uh, petty royal family who never made it into the historical record. <laughs> so they're there in the in the eighth uh, and ninth and tenth centuries, and they're burying uh, their dead with these really really uh, rich graves that have been excavated. Um, and uh, only now do we realize that yeah, we've got their house too. We've got every uh, post hole. Uh, we know where it is and where the the central hearth was, and uh, we can find exact parallels to the. Uh, architecture at Old Uppsala. The best parallels to this building's uh, uh, layout is from Old Uppsala. So uh, not not bad for uh, for ten hours of field work and uh, of course a couple of days of data processing by Andreas afterwards. I, I got a question about the mound real quick. Um, are the would the mound that this was constructed on would the mound itself have been constructed or is that a natural formation that was basically leveled so they could construct the the longhouse? No, the mound is constructed. Uh, okay. It's built out of uh, dirt from an, an older Iron Age cemetery, so it's mm. f- full of uh, 
bit, bits of bone and potsherd. And if you want to be symbolic about it, you can say that this was was usually significant. Or um, And I'd say that's probably likely in the case of the Viking period, because we see them time and time again doing strange stuff to earlier uh, burial sites. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not uh, just being uh, vandals. They're, I think they're... Uh, um, insecure pagans. The Viking <laughs> period is when, when they leave paganism behind. So we yeah. see them time and time again reusing bits of the pagan material culture in really odd ways. So, yeah. you know, Gotland, the, the island in the Baltic, they have these beautiful pictorial stelae. Uh, we call them picture stones simply. They're like rune stones only with pictures instead of runes. Mm -hmm. And there's two contexts where you find these picture stones. You either find them um, uh, mortared into churches sort of reused in churches, or you find them as lid slabs on the last generation of pagan graves on Gotland. Hmm. So they're picking them up and reusing them as lid slabs or uh, headstones uh, hundreds of years after they were erected. And it's typical for a Viking period um, uh, behavior around uh, all sorts of things. That they they kind of want to get in touch with the, the happy... Um, you know, happy uh, days of unquestioned paganism. That's really interesting. So the, the, yeah, it's not bad. So the mound is definitely artificial. We knew that for already in the 80s, but nobody um, uh, thought that uh, the, uh, the important stuff might be on the top of it. Everybody sort of uh, assumed that the interesting stuff will be under it. So you talked about using GPR on this project, and that's something I'm personally really interesting, interested in. Would you mind just defining what GPR, ground-penetrating radar, is for our listeners um, who might not know and have run into this before? But then also kind of talk about its use and prevalence uh, in Sweden. Yeah, it's it's one of the many geophysical methods. Uh, uh, ground-penetrating radar is the same kind of radar that is used at, at airports and in and fighter planes and everything, uh, only you send it into the ground instead of horizontally across the, the ground surface. And um, it'll bounce at different things. It, it, uh, it'll bounce at interfaces sort of between the, the cut and the fill in a sunken feature like a post hole or a hearth pit or a grave. It'll bounce against uh, the, sh uh, the 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 water that collects in a in a pit of stones. It will bounce against the stone itself. Uh, so depending on what kind of feature you're looking for, uh, G uh, GPR is often uh, very uh, uh, rich and uh, it'll, it'll show you a lot of stuff. Whereas magnetometry, I've I've had some some bad experiences with that, where it will only show you the stuff that has been altered by heat. So you'll find lots and lots of hearths and nothing else. Or, or metalworking pits or mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, uh, if you visit a site where somebody's working with a GPR, ground penetrating radar, then you'll see somebody who's apparently walking backwards with a uh, small lawnmower or vacuum cleaner. Uh, and that's the, uh, the, the measuring equipment. You can have bigger setups uh, like um, uh, a four-wheel motorcycle pulling this uh, elaborate uh, cart behind it with... Uh, measuring equipment on it, uh, but that's a bit more high-end. Of course, this stuff is uh, being developed uh, every year. It gets better and better. And uh, because of Time Team, you know, the, the English uh, <laughs> yeah. TV program, yeah. everybody in the UK knows what geophys is. Um, <laughs> uh, it's become a household word for them because Time Team's big idea was that they would geophys the site and then they would only excavate the, the, the best bits. So they would mm -hmm. only have to excavate for three days. Um, and that's how they made each episode. And as I said, I mean, uh, with traditional methods to find out that, yeah, this 50 meter long uh, uh, mound is, uh, has all the post holes of a huge uh, banqueting hall on top of it. Doing that uh, would have taken uh, weeks, if not months, uh, with traditional methods, and also it would have messed the site up. And uh, w this is just a lawn. So we just pulled our, our vacuum cleaner across it for a couple of hours. And, and here we are. We can give you the plan of the thing. Uh, but um, uh, geophysical methods are, are uh, growing import in importance in Sweden and uh, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, G GPR is not the only method, but uh, uh, different methods are good in different uh, contexts, I guess. And I think it's definitely the way to go. Uh, an interesting perspective is that if you excavate a site, you ruin a lot of the data that you could have collected with GPR or magnetometry or any kind of geophys. So it's kind of unethical now to excavate a site without first uh, uh, making sure you have 
geophysical data right because you're, you're going to screw that that over with your trench so yeah. next time when somebody finally runs uh, uh, geophys across the site they will get this blank rectangle in the middle oh and they'll say oh that was Rundqvist in 2016 he vandalized the site <laughs> he, he excavated without using the the geophysical equipment that was available in his day yeah Okay. Yeah. Well, we've only good, got a... good stuff. And uh... <laughs> go ahead. Uh, so I was going to say we've only got uh, a couple minutes left. So um, and April actually had to leave us because she's off to the airport for some holiday travel. But uh, I just want to. You mentioned time team, and I've heard other people um, from the UK mention that same aspect about time team. How it's just like it, it ran for so long that it's just common for people to um, to know certain things that they definitely wouldn't know as as common knowledge over here in the United States. Um, what uh, kind of building on that? What is what is sort of the public perception of archaeology in Sweden? Um, you said you mentioned ninety five percent of the archaeology being done by contract archaeologists. I know I know people over here. Well, typically, you know, you have your supporters, but then you have a lot of people in industry that are just like, you know, these guys are costing us time and money. And, and of course, we've got the Dakota Access Pipeline fiasco going on right now. Um, so what? How do people see that over there in Sweden? Are they are they are, are the, is the general public generally pro archaeology and history and research, or you know, do a lot of them see it as a as a hindrance to progress, like like people do here in some cases? Uh, I'd say that the typical Swedish attitude is one of benevolent ignorance. Uh, mm -hmm. They uh, kind of know about archaeology; they don't care much, but they're they're fine with it. They can't always tell archaeology apart from paleontology. They they will mention dinosaurs. But mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of interested and they, they think it's uh, interesting to meet one of these fabled creatures, the archaeologist. <laughs> as, as for the, uh, the, the money aspect, there is no political opposition to it at all. There's mm -hmm. no party in, uh, in the Swedish parliament who wants to um, make it cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's uh, largely because uh, public road building and public uh, railway building is, is all done by the same uh, uh, state department uh, called the, the traffic department. And in, uh, in the, the, the context of a major highway project, the expenses for, for contract archaeology are completely neg negligible. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's basically what they, uh, they pay for uh, uh, paper clips uh, right. on such a project. So um, nobody's looking at the smaller numbers in the budget for the traffic department and say, uh, saying, we need to excavate fewer of these tar-making <laughs> pits in the woods. Um, so uh, I'd say that um, uh, we have a good relationship with the public and it's getting better and better thanks to the fact that <laughs> the poor public is now also funding um, um, outreach. Mm -hmm. It used to be that outreach was not included in um, in uh, excavation projects, and then they realized that hey, should we really be paying all this money just for for nerdy archive reports that nobody has access to? Mm -hmm. So now uh, developers, that is usually the traffic department, have to um, to pay for uh, a pretty uh, hefty uh, amount of um, popularization and outreach as well, which of course make people more interested. And uh, yeah. even though they're they're paying a bit more, they're also getting more. Right. Uh, out of it. Okay. Well, I think that's about time. Um, as, as with most of our shows and interviews, I think we could just go on uh, all day talking about this, <laughs> but we'll have to. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. Well, thanks. And we'll have to refocus. And, and you know, next time you have a, a publication or a book or something come out and you want to talk, we'll bring you on the show and, and, uh, and let our listeners know about it. So uh, thanks, Martin, for coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we can talk again uh, in the future. Many, many thanks. Goodbye. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.